1: And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom in the American way. I've got a new book out, The Hidden History of American healthcare, Why Sickness Bankrupts You and Makes Others Insanely Rich. And I wrote it essentially as a how-to manual for people who want to uh, advocate for single-payer health care and as a what's up for pretty much everybody else. In other words, here's the history of how we got here. I'm just gonna take this hour and go through step by step all the different pieces of this, um, starting with why is healthcare not a right in the United States, and then in the second block going to how did the healthcare companies get so rich and powerful, and how do they maintain that power, to number three, the third part of the hour, how Medicare Advantage can kill Medicare for all, and then in the fourth part of the hour, how Canada got health care and how we can too. So why is health care not a right in the United States? The United Nations negotiated this agreement that pretty much every country in the world except the United States signed the United Nations Convention on Human Rights that says healthcare care is a right. And every other developed country in the world except the United States acknowledges that healthcare is a right and not a privilege. And that's a really important distinction because when something is defined or recognized by a government as a right, that means that if people don't have access to it, the government has an obligation to provide it. For example, education. We have decided in the United States that education is a right. Everyone has a right to a decent education. And that's why if your school is providing your kids, you or your kids with a substandard education, you have the basis actually for a lawsuit because you have a right to good education. In every other country, every other developed country in the world, healthcare is a right. And different governments have figured out different ways to deliver this to everybody. They basically fall into into three buckets, Uh, but not the United States. We have not defined this as a right. Those three buckets, by the way, are the American system, which is mostly privatized and for-profit health insurance, the socialized medicine system, which is basically the United Kingdom's National Health Service, and the VA hospitals in the United States. And the third is single-payer healthcare, which is what we have in the United States with Medicare, what we would have if we had Medicare for All, and what other countries have with their single-payer systems. So why is it that we never said in the United States healthcare is a right? Turns out this goes back to the 1880s. In 1884, Germany got their first single-payer health care system, Otto von Bismarck. This is when Germany, this is even before the German Republic. This is when Germany was an empire. And the head of the German empire, Otto von Bismarck, pushed through a single-payer health care system because he said it would keep the populace and the army healthy at the lowest expense to the public purse. In other words, it's the best way to do it. And he was... He was right. That same decade a guy named Frederick Ludwig Hoffman uh, left Germany at the age of 17 with 5 bucks in his pocket and came to the United States as an immigrant. He was a what's the word, savant. He was a mathematical savant. This guy with numbers was he could do magic with numbers. And he ended up having a job, getting a job with a Prudential Life Insurance Company, which at the time was the largest insurance company in the United States and he was running numbers for them to figure out how much to charge people for their life insurance policies. And he's the guy, Frederick Kaufman, he's the guy who figured out that there's an association between smoking cigarettes and getting lung cancer, between uh, being exposed to asbestos and getting mesothelioma, the disease that killed my father, and between uh, working in cotton mills and getting fibrosis of the lungs, and also between eating a diet high in processed foods and getting a a variety of types of cancer in fact his book on diet and cancer is still in print in 2021 even though he died in 1946 so anyhow he 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 directed his numerical work toward the so-called race problem because you know prudential at that time and other life insurance companies we're trying to figure out how much to charge for their policies. Originally, they just didn't want to cover black people at all. But then, you know, as as a market developed, as some black prosperity was emerging, um, in in parts of the United States, the you know the insurance companies were like, okay, what do we charge? And so Hoffman ran the numbers, and sure enough, black people were dying at higher rates than white people, and they were getting sick at higher rates than white people. Now, you and I today in 2021 know that that all has to do with something called systemic racism but that wasn't even a phrase back in the 1890s and so Frederick Hoffman wrote this book based on his math based on his research titled race traits and tendencies of the American Negro he published this in 1896 the same year Plessy versus Ferguson turned America legally and officially into an apartheid nation with uh, you know separate but equal and in his book race traits Frederick Hoffman uh, a, pointed out that blacks were dying and getting sick you know, at higher numbers than whites, but then made a couple of logical leaps that he believed the evidence, the numeric evidence, uh, you know, supported, but now we know historically is just nonsense. The first was that this was because the reason why black people were dying at higher rates and getting sick at higher rates was because they were genetically inferior to white people. In fact, he went so far as to say that during slavery, black people were healthy and happy, his phrase. But post-slavery, without the white person to protect them, the the black race, his phrase, um, uh, began to essentially disintegrate. So which led him to his second hypothesis which was in his book Race Traits in 1896, which was that if white people who control the politics and most of the economy of the United States simply deny health care to black people, the black race, again his phrase, would die out in two or three generations. And that would quote, solve the race problem in America. Frederick Hoffman took this theory, pitched it to Congress Uh, gave lectures all across the united states to state legislatures met with governors um, uh, to physicians groups he was he was uh beloved by those establishments he by the way he was the co-founder of the american lung association i mean the guy was no no uh, uh slouch he was he was powerful he was famous and people took him seriously woodrow wilson well and and this is why in 1912, when Teddy Roosevelt proposed a single payer health care system to cover everybody with, as part of his square deal plan when he was running for president for, for you know, re-election, this was why that got shot down. Because white people, including the medical establishment, but white people by and large, said, particularly the white racists in the South, said, wait a minute, if you cover everybody with health insurance, you're going to be covering black people too, and we can't have that. So that ended that discussion in 1912. It's also what, why they came after Franklin Roosevelt in 1936 when he proposed a single-payer system. It's why they came after Harry Truman in 1947 when he proposed a single-payer health care system. But black people, we can't do that. Black people will get that health care. And, uh, you know, and and uh, this is why they came after John Kennedy in 1961 when he proposed a single-payer health care system. And it's why when Lyndon Johnson and Robert Ball were writing, writing the Medicare law in, the, in 1965, the Southern racist conservative senators came to them and said, you need to build into this thing a bar high enough that poor black people in the South and 60% of black people live in the South right now. It was even a higher proportion back then in the 1960s. So the poor black people in the South won't be able to jump over that bar and show up at our all-white hospitals. So they took Medicare Part B, which is the part that pays for hospitalization, and said, we're only gonna pay for 80% of the hospitalization. There'll be a 20% gap, which is the gap that you fill in with your Medigap policy now. That gap was to prevent black people from presenting themselves in hospitals unless it was just an absolute screaming, life-ending emergency. So, from the beginning through the 1960s, the reason why the United States never acknowledged healthcare as a right rather than a privilege was because of Hoffman's theories and white racism. I mean, they were just like intertwined and American racism. I don't know how else to say it. And that prevailed right up until the 1980s. That that kind of thinking and that kind of opposition to any kind of healthcare program that might help black people as well, particularly poor black people, as well as white people. It's why to this day, 12 former slave states have refused to expand Medicaid from Texas to Florida. It, goes, it all goes back to, to Frederick Hoffman, which takes us to stage two, which is you know, why the uh, healthcare companies or, you know, why it is that we have not been able since the 1960s or the 70s or the 80s, really it's since the 1980s, why we have not been able to overcome that opposition, even as racism in the United States has in some ways softened. You wouldn't know it to look at the Trump rallies, but it actually in some ways has, uh, institutionally anyway want to read a chapter out of the book. This is titled, Rick Scott Killed Charlene Dill. When I was five and six years old, my dad had two jobs, selling Rexair vacuum cleaners and World Book encyclopedias door to door. We used to visit what my younger brothers and I called the cheese store every weekend in Lansing, Michigan, where we'd pick up powdered milk, giant blocks of processed American cheese, and add a 20-pound bag of macaroni. I still hate powdered milk and love mac and cheese, which is why Charlene Dill's story hit me so hard. In 2014, she was living pretty much the life my dad had. She was working several part-time jobs, house cleaning and babysitting, and had had just added a side gig selling vacuum cleaners. And like my dad back then, she was just barely getting by while parenting three young children. As her best friend Kathleen Voss Woolridge wrote at the time and later told me on the phone, quote, she paid her property taxes and took care of her little trailer, which she owned, and got all three of her kids to school and daycare. She was a very responsible person." End quote. My dad's heart condition didn't develop until he was in his 60s, and by then he'd been 40 years at a good union job and had excellent health insurance, even through his retirement. Charlene wasn't so lucky. As Woolrich recounted, quote, after feeling pain in her chest, Charlene, quote, went to the emergency room in 2012 and was told she had heart issues and needed monitoring and medication. But the Florida Republican Party and Governor Rick Scott had turned down 51 billion federal dollars for Obamacare's 2009 Medicaid expansion. So she had to work extra to pay for the meds and the ER was her doctor's office, end quote. On March 21st, uh, she was going to get together with Woolrich and her daughter, who would essentially grown up with Charlene's kids. But first she had to earn a few more dollars to pay for her heart medication, which she'd been cutting back on because of its cost. The affordable care act would have paid for charlene's doctor visits and medications but the billionaire Koch brothers in particular were incensed by that prospect they put up millions to fund advertising and pr campaigns first to stop and then to destroy what americans had started calling obamacare rick scott who was heavily supported by the Koch brothers they sent 40 paid staffers to florida to help with his last gubernatorial campaign followed their libertarian line by taking that taking money from rich people to pay for the health care of working poor people was a bad idea. After all, it might hurt their incentive to work a second or third job like Charlene Dill did. When Obamacare was rolled out, the National Federation of Independent Businesses, the NFIB, went on the attack, pressing a lawsuit that went all the way to the Supreme Court, National Federation of Independent Business v. Sibelius. The NFIB likes to present itself as a representative of small businesses, but its CEO makes nearly a million dollars a year As Renee Phelps wrote for The Guardian, past tax records reveal most of the NFIB's funding comes from Freedom Partners, whose nine-member board includes eight current or former key figures at Koch Industries and other Koch entities. More than 95% of the candidates it backs are Republicans. Nonetheless, the NFIB went into court as the protector of small business rights, including the right to not have government take money from the Koch brothers and their peers to pay for working people's health care. Joined by 26 Republican-led states, with politicians taking money from various Koch-funded enterprises and a few right-wing individuals, the NFIB claimed that requiring every state to expand Medicaid to cover their working poor was an unconstitutional form of coercion. The Supreme Court agreed, which is what gave Rick Scott the ability to not expand Medicaid and is why Charlene Dill was out selling vacuum cleaners, rainbow vacuum cleaners, her third job that day, and dropped dead of a heart attack. So we get why we don't have health care as a right, right? Racism, essentially. How is it that we never got just a decent health care system in the United States? Well, obviously, prior to the, prior to the 1980s, it had to do with racism. But the big thing that happened in the 1980s was in 1983, when Ronald Reagan instructed the Justice Department and the Federal Trade Commission uh, to stop enforcing the antitrust laws. This was the greed is good era. This was the less government is better era. This was the uh, deregulation era. And so we went from two dynamics, basically two dynamics have blown up. The first was. When Reagan came into office, most health insurance companies in the United States were nonprofits, and most uh, states required, in fact, most states required that. And most states required that all their hospitals be nonprofits. I ran a little tea company, herbal tea company in Michigan in, uh, from 1972, I think it was, until 1978 called the Woodley Herber Company. And we sold herbal teas. We had a little factory and a bunch of employees and, and health care was cheap. We provided health care to all our employees. And the all three hospitals in Lansing were nonprofits. So what changed was that the, this Reagan revolution, two things. Number one, by ending the anti-monopoly enforcement, we went from hundreds of health insurance companies across the United States to about a dozen. And number two, by ending the requirements, state by state and federally, By ending the requirements that health insurance companies be nonprofits and that hospitals be nonprofits. Nonprofits, of course, their first goal is to serve their customers. They don't make a profit, whereas a for-profit, their first goal is to show a profit for their owners and stockholders. Um, So, you know, these two things just kind of combined to make the this dozen or so health insurance companies that came out of the Reagan deregulation so wealthy and so powerful any time a politician stood up and said gee maybe we should take on the health insurance industry they would just squash him like a bug this is an, this is an industry that's making a a trillion do, excuse me a billion dollars a month in profits this is an industry that that could buy any politician in america who is willing to be bought and probably has this is this is an industry that can carpet bomb america with television advertising with, you know, for for months at a time with a single day's leftover profits. And so when Joe Lieberman, for example, was the deciding vote on whether we would have a public option, which would give everybody in America the option of buying into Medicare, which the health insurance companies, of course, correctly saw as the camel's nose under the edge of the tent, right, the beginning of uh, the end for them. They gave Joe Lieberman over a million dollars through his career, and he said, No, to the public option. He's the guy who killed it. And he was a Democrat. Well, actually, he was an independent then, as uh, uh, I'm forgetting which politician it was who said it. But, uh, you know, one of, oh, Paul Begala actually said, it says, Joe Lieberman, I, Connecticut, like I is for independent. He said, I should stand for insurance. Of course, he was from Connecticut, which is where some of the biggest insurance companies in the country are based. So it shouldn't surprise us, except that under the laws in the 70s, in the early 70s, it would have been illegal. But the US Supreme Court said money is speech, and if the health insurance company industry wants to buy politicians, that is simply them exercising as corporate persons their right to free speech, their First Amendment right to free speech. And that's why we haven't seen an expansion of Medicaid in the States, it's why we haven't seen Medicare for All, it's why we haven't seen anything like it. In the last part of this hour, I'll get into how we could have Medicare for all in the United States, how other countries have done it. The essence of the issue here, if we're going to have Medicare for all, Right, this is, this is one of the goals. Uh, one of the best ways to get a national health care system is to take an existing system like we have, an existing single-payer system, Medicare. Medicare runs on a between two and 3% overhead, depending on whether or not you include government buildings and things in that overhead. So at the most, a 3% overhead. Health insurance companies are capped at a 20% overhead by Obamacare. They used to run 30, 35% overhead in some cases. Of course, that 20% overhead means it's costing a whole lot more. So the, the thing that the health insurance company, and, I, and I, frankly, I, I have to give some credit to George W. Bush because I think that they all saw this coming back in 2003 when they uh, quote, reformed Medicare. What they saw coming was the possibility that Medicare, ed, that, that Medicare could become our national healthcare system. And they wanted to add a private component to it, lickety split, as fast as they could, so that if Medicare became our national health care system, there was sp- still a giant space there for private health insurance companies to make a fortune. So in 2003, what they did was they, they took Medicare Part C, which had been around for a long time, and, and was like, it was, it was a little crack in Medicare that could be filled in with private health insurance under certain very rare circumstances. And they said, we're going to expand this little crack to be all encompassing. Anybody can buy one of these health insurance, these private for-profit health insurance policies. And instead of calling them private for-profit health insurance, we're going to let the companies call them Medicare Advantage. They're not Medicare. They're They're not subject to the same rules of Medicare. Doctors don't have to accept them. They can they can refuse to pay for certain doctors. They can refuse to pay for certain hospitals. And to, in fact, they all basically work that way. They have in-network systems and out-of-network systems. They pre-approve things. None of this happens with Medicare. Right? If you've got Medicare, you go to the doctor. Nobody needs any approval. You get tests. Nobody needs any approval. You go to the hospital. You get. I had surgery. No. You know, nobody had to check with anybody. But if I had had Medicare Advantage, which are actually not Medicare, these are private for-profit health insurance plans, then I would have had to jump through all those hoops and I would have had to be sure that my doctor was actually in the program. And if the hospital had had, had, for example, an anesthesiologist, this is one of the more common ones, um, who was a contractor to the hospital and therefore not part of the hospital network. And after my my back surgery, I might have ended up with a $10,000 bill for anesthesiology. This commonly happens in the United States for people who are on private health insurance policies under 65 or on Medicare Advantage policies over 65. So what they did was they built out this Medicare Advantage thing as a way of building uh, in 2003, the Bush administration as, and, and Congress, as a way of, of establishing a beachhead inside Medicare or what looked like it was inside Medicare so that if we ever went to Medicare for all, they would already have the upper hand. And in fact, because the Medicare Advantage plans are so unregulated, when you're healthy, they offer you all kinds of goodies. Hey, free rides to the doctor. You want meals, we'll give you meals. You want $100 a month, we'll give it to you instead of you paying us. Well, you got $0 payments. I mean, we've all seen the ads right on TV with with Joe Namath and and other TV stars or other other stars. and yeah, sure, you can get all that stuff, but wait till you get sick. They have these two policies, the 2 uh, I don't mean not like insurance policies, these, these two systems essentially that the health insurance companies use with these private, privatized Medicare, so-called Medicare Advantage programs. They're called cherry picking and lemon dropping. And cherry picking is where they offer things that are incentives to people who are healthy to get into the programs. For example, free gym membership. You know, that, that appeals to healthy people, so they're more likely to sign up for these Advantage programs. On the other hand, once you start getting sick, after you've been on the program for five or ten years, and you're now in your mid-70s or your early 80s, and you're starting to get expensive, then they do what's called lemon dropping. And lemon dropping is where they basically make it miserable for people to the point that they give up and go away and go back to regular Medicare once they get expensive uh you know they make you uh, jump through multiple instead of having to jump through two hoops to get your surgery approved you now have to jump through five hoops i mean there's no limit essentially to what they can do because it's so uh, so li- minimally regulated medicare advantage and they've reached now a third of americans i tell a story in in the book about a, a friend of mine i name, i call him sam in the book it's not his real name but He's a guy that uh, back in the 70s, myself and some friends of mine in in, uh, in New York City used to hang out with uh, down in Greenwich Village. And I, I used to do a lot of business in New York. And I used to spend a lot of time in New York in the 70s. And he and was just a couple of years younger than me. And last year, while I was writing the book, in fact, I got a call from a mutual friend of ours. I hadn't heard of, you know, from Sam's literally since probably 1975, 76, something like that. You know, it, it had been, Um, you know, 40 40 years or something like that. And uh, my friend told me that Sam was having a tough time. He turned 65, he went to sign up for Medicare, he got hopelessly confused, uh, Googling it, because he was just overwhelmed with all this Medicare Advantage sales pitches and everything else, and he couldn't figure out how to sign up for actual Medicare with the federal government, because the federal government doesn't have the budget to pay for search engine optimization and to pump out thousands of papers and ads from think tanks and and uh, ad agencies to, to litter up the the internet and so he just gave up he said and, and you know screw it you know i'm still healthy i just turned 65 i'll just i'll figure this out in a couple of months but he was having trouble peeing as in urinating so he went to a local doc in the box i mean he'd been healthy his whole life right he, in fact he didn't even have a regular doctor he, so he went to a local doc in a box, one of these emergency medical care places or urgent care centers that was run by a large hospital network and uh, said, you know, I'm having trouble urinating, what's going on? They, they took some blood and they came back and he had a PSA that was through the roof. I mean, it was so high that not only was it almost a certain, not only was a certainty that he had prostate cancer um, or his prostate was just like, you know, in some kind of raging infection but also that it had probably broken out of the prostate metastasized and metastatic prostate cancer is the second leading cause of death among men in the united states they had heart disease so at that point he thought okay you know i need to do something about this he's at this dock in the box place the surgeon care center and they said uh, as they were processing his you know his two three hundred dollar payment as he was leaving uh they said you know we can sign you up for a medicare advantage plan that is provided by the company that owns this hospital. And it won't cost you a penny. It's a zero dollar plan. And so he was like, cool, okay, sign me up. And so he signs up for Medicare Advantage. He then starts calling around, and so now he's got insurance. So he thinks, okay, I'll go find a surgeon or I'll find a, a prostate expert who can tell me what's going on. He starts calling around. He finds out that the, the top prostate cancer people in the, in the country were at Sloan Kettering Memorial in New York City. And so he makes an appointment there. They say, do you have insurance? He says, yeah, I've got Medicare. They're like, okay, cool. We'll see you when you get here. He shows up a month or so later, and lo and behold, his Medicare Advantage program doesn't pay for Sloan Kettering. In fact, none of the Medicare Advantage programs in New York City pay for Sloan Kettering. None of them. Because, hey, it's the highest quality, but it's also the most expensive. So then he tries to get off Medicare Advantage and discovers that once you're on Medicare Advantage, if you try to go back to regular medicare and buy one of those medigap policies that fills in that twenty percent gap that was put there by those racist southern senators who told lbj they wanted a bar for black people to jump over that if you try to sign up for medicare regular medicare no problem you can do that at least you can do that in the fall in between october and january during that open registration period but if you if you want to get a Medigap gap policy so you don't end up with you know, a $100,000 surgery with a $10,000 or $20,000 bill that you have to pay if you want to get a Medigap policy. While they cannot consider pre existing conditions when you turn 65 and you first sign up, they can consider pre existing conditions if you're coming back from Medicare Advantage and they can simply refuse to insure you. So he's looking at having Medicare pay for his surgery, but having basically planning on going bankrupt when the bill comes for the 20%. That's where we're at. And this was all to make sure that we, when we move to Medicare for all, or if we move to Medicare for all, there's still a place for the health insurance industry. And now about a third of people over 65 have bought the sales pitch and are on these private for profit medicare advantage plans rather than on real medicare thinking that they have medicare when they don't it's just a brand it's just a label medicare advantage it's not real medicare you're listening to tom hartman visit tomhartman.com for audio and video archives up next how canada got medicare for all and how we can too this is from the hidden history of american healthcare my new book Reading from the book, this is from page 114. This is the solutions chapter, you know, part of the book, "The Hidden History of American Healthcare." Uh, it's titled "Undoing Reaganomics and Reducing Inequality Would Save Lives." At its core, healthcare is about making and keeping people healthy. We think of it in terms of doctors' offices, pharmacies, and hospitals, but it's really all about making and keeping people healthy. Given that larger frame, there are a number of number of government policies that have nothing to do with paying doctors' bills. But should be an important part of this conversation. Generally, people understand these peripheral issues and policies to include things like taxes that discourage the consumption of alcohol or tobacco, anti addiction programs, incentives for people to get more exercise, for example, by bicycling to work. All of these are important, and many of them move to front and center policy wise when everyone in the country has a financial stake in the health and well being of its citizens because everybody's paying into the national health care system through their taxes. But in terms of bang for the buck, there is one thing that has a greater negative impact on the health of a nation's citizens than any other single policy, economic inequality. Outside of providing full and free access to health care across the board, no other factor has such a broad and sustained influence on the health of a nation's people as does economic inequality. It's not about poverty. Although the United States has the worst and deepest poverty in the developed world, and poverty has real and negative consequences. Inequality affects the health of nearly everybody except the very, very rich in a society. It's not about the spending. The United States accounts for about 40% of the entire world's healthcare expenditures with only a bit more than 4% of the world's population. But we don't have the world's healthiest or most long-lived people, far from it. Many much less wealthy countries have much better physical and mental health, even though they spend less than half per person of what the United States spends on health care. Inequality is about the difference in the income and/or wealth between a society's richest and poorest members. Richard Wilkinson and Kate Pickett have spent decades researching inequality, producing a body of work that includes three internationally best-selling books, numerous articles, and a nonprofit called the Equality Trust. Looking at a wide range of health and social problems across the society, From obesity to children's educational performance to suicide rates, Pickett and Wilson found that the best predictor of a nation's well-being wasn't the amount that the society spent on health care, education, or housing. It wasn't how rich the country was, either in aggregate or in average. It definitely wasn't how many millionaires or billionaires a country had. Instead, they found that the countries with the greatest inequality in wealth and income had the absolute worst outcomes on a whole range of social and health measures, while the countries that had, a, that had greater equality fared significantly better uh, and measured significantly better. Every single index is worse in a country with great inequality. They include but not, are not limited to infant mortality, life expectancy, depression and mental illness, height, birth, birth weight, The rate of teenage pregnancies, imprisonment rates, obesity, social mobility, children's educational performance, social and political trust and engagement, hypertension and heart disease, and homicide and suicide. Looking at the countries of the developed world, Pickett and Wilson Wilkerson found that the more unequal a nation was, the worse its outcomes. And the United States is the most unequal country in the world, and therefore we have the worst outcomes in every single one of those categories I just made. So going through this, uh, you know, I'm kind of skipping through the book here, essentially, or the concepts that are in the book, "The Hidden History of American Healthcare: Why Sickness Bankrupts You and Makes Others Insanely Rich." And I wanted to talk about how can we get to a single-payer healthcare system in the United States. And there's a couple strategies I outline in the book. Um, one is, let's just buy all the health insurance companies. They're worth about a trillion dollars, their market capitalization. Uh, you know, that's the first year of Trump's tax cuts. It's an amount of money that, you know, is not that big a deal for the federal government. Just buy them. That's one possibility. I doubt that's going to happen, but, you know, I I wanted to lay it out as an idea. But the other is how Canada got health care. Tommy Douglas was a politician from Saskatchewan who went off to be a federal politician, what we might call a member of Congress. He was a member of the Canadian Parliament for years uh, back in the 50s where he was advocating for single-payer healthcare without any success at the federal level. So finally, he just gave up. He said, screw this, he went back to Saskatchewan, which is, uh, you know, it's a fairly large province, uh, what we would call a state, uh, but like Vermont, it has a fairly small population. So you can really do retail politics there. You know, when I lived in Vermont, people used to joke about how everybody in Vermont has shaken Bernie's hand at least three times, because he just does retail politics constantly. He's like the Energizer Bunny it's probably up to 10 times now. Well, Tommy Douglas went back to Saskatchewan and did that. He did retail politics. He just traveled all over, all over Saskatchewan and got elected premier, governor, and pushed through and passed and put into place a single-payer healthcare system. And it was so successful at giving everybody coverage at a really low cost and really working well that within a year or so, the states around, the provinces around them were, you know, Ontario, British Columbia, they were like, whoa, this is cool, we want this. And within a decade, uh, actually I I believe it was less than a decade, it had spread all the way across Canada. Every Canadian province wanted to have what Saskatchewan had, and they all cloned it, although they did it in different ways. Some provinces included health care, excuse me, vision, some included uh, mental health, some included uh, ears, uh, excuse me, hearing aids, I mean, it just it varies from, from province to province, and there's different prices from province to province. And then the federal government stepped in and created a kind of backup back funding system so that if somebody from Saskatchewan got sick while they were visiting Ontario, the Ontario system would provide for their care and then could bill the Saskatchewan system via the federal government. So, you know, it's, just, it's, it's worked well and it's based in the states. We can do the same thing here in the United States. Vermont already passed single payer health care and tried to put it into place. California too. Both of them were stopped dead in their tracks by the fact that if a state goes single payer, they lose access to Medicare and Medicaid payments. Because back in the 60s, the uh, Lyndon Johnson built into Medicare and Medicaid because he was concerned that the Southern states would take the money and then refuse to, to use it to pay for black people's health. So they put into these two programs basically a provision that says if the states try to mess you know to take this money and use it other than exactly the way this law provides they can't have the money so what we need to be doing is contacting our legislators our two senators and our member of congress and telling them in plain straightforward simple language please vote for medicare and medicaid waivers for the states so that individual states can put into place single-payer systems. That's how, you, that's how you say it. And they'll all understand exactly what you're talking about. The, the actual you know, pitch would involve acronyms and ERISA and all this kind of complicated stuff. But if you just say, please vote for these waivers. Now, the health insurance companies have been fighting these things tooth and nail. Congress has repeatedly proposed them. Democrats in Congress have repeatedly proposed these waivers. Bernie has been at the forefront of this, but you know, it's right across the board. Many Democrats are supportive of this, but the Republicans and a few of the Democrats who are deeply in the pockets of the health insurance industry have been fighting them. If we do that, then overnight, California and Vermont will have single payer health care, And you can bet your bottom dollar that within a year or three or four or five, pretty much every other state in the United States, maybe excluding the red states where they haven't even expanded Medicaid, but pretty much every other state will have single payer health care. And the pressure will be on the politicians of every single state in the United States to do what these other states have done. So, this is a very straightforward way that we can bring about health care for everybody in the United States and just join the rest of the world. Canada has better health care outcomes than the United States. Their people live longer than the United States. And the only reason is, or the largest reason, Inequality is part of it, but the largest reason is that everybody in Canada has health insurance, and everybody in the United States doesn't. We have tens of millions of people who have no health insurance, and we have over 200 million Americans who have under, who are essentially underinsured, who would go broke if they got sick, seriously sick. So we got to fix this. And I, I wrote the book as kind of a how-to manual on how to do it: The Hidden History of American Healthcare: Why Sickness Bankrupts You and Makes Others Rich.
0: you're listening to Tom Hartman.
1: Medicare is continuously confusing to me. <laughs> I just, oh, I'll share that with you. And I was mixing up parts A and B. I, so I went over to Medicare.gov, because somebody earlier had called and I said, I thought that part B was hospitalization. That's part A, actually. And that's, you know, so you know, the whole Medigap thing. And in, in general, Part A, I'm reading from Medicare's website. In general, Part A covers inpatient care in a hospital, skilled nursing facility care, nursing home care, hospice care, and home health care. That's Part A. Part B covers uh, clinical research, ambulance services, durable medical equipment, mental health, inpatient, outpatient, and partial hospitalization. And limited outpatient prescription drugs, so there you go. That's you know right from their site. And uh, if you want to uh, learn how you can move from Medicare Advantage to back to regular Medicare or vice versa, you know as you may choose to do, there is a site. It's uh, there's a there's an, a, a, a website called SeniorsResourceGuide.com, and a uh, tip of the hat to uh, to Jim who who uh, sent this to me, Um, and thank you, Jim, Uh, seniorsresourceguide.com, and uh, if you go to there, and then slash directory slash nationals slash SHIP, which I just tweeted, because that's too long for anybody to write down while I'm talking about it on the air, so just look at my most recent tweet, and it takes you right to this site, and it's titled, find your state's health insurance assistance program, so if you want help with Medicare that's not you know, you're not talking to an insurance broker, you're not talking to somebody who's going to try and make some money off you, you're talking to a, a state employee who understands the policies and the laws in your state. They're all listed on this one website that I just tweeted out uh, from this seniors resource guide. So hopefully that's of help. Sasha in Kent, Washington, listening to KBCS. Hey, Sasha, what's up?
0: We had a caller from Washington who wanted to get off of Medicare, I call it, disadvantage. The one thing I understand is that she must do that during the upcoming period that starts October 15th. That's the time and she's lucky in washington state we have an insurance commissioner's office i have found them very helpful mm. in looking at plans and they are especially helpful on looking at the uh reagan penalty on medications and they they help sort through which is the best program that covers the medications that you need
1: oh that's interesting so you've got actually counselors who are employees of the state of washington who don't have a, a dog in the fight or whatever terrible exactly. metaphor you want to use? Exactly the words use. I was going to use. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's great. So, how do you contact him, Sasha? Uh, you know, I someone gave you a phone number, and I thought, oh, I should have looked up the number. But it's Washington State Insurance Commissioner's Office. Okay. And then they can. That should be fairly through. easy to track down. That's great. Yeah. Thank you for that, because I'm I shouldn't be the source. In fact, I'm going to officially stop. Uh, advising people what to do, or even suggesting what people should do, because I, a, I don't want the responsibility. I don't want somebody coming back on me and saying, "Well, I did what you said, and you know, disaster happened." But, uh, but, b, it's just you know, I'm not an expert on Medicare and Medicare Advantage. I'm a reporter. I, 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 uh, I spent a year researching it. I compiled that research into a book. I presented it to you for evaluation, but. You know, there are people who are experts on this, though, like the people over at SocialSecurityWorks.org. And obviously, you you know, with your state insurance commissioner. And so I should just defer to them in all cases. And I will do so in the future. Sasha, thank you so much. Thank you. Great talking with you. Mark in uh, San Francisco. Hey, Mark, thanks for watching us on Facebook. What's up?
0: Oh, Tom, uh, you know, Eugene Robinson, a brilliant uh, journalist, says that this is a Republican pandemic. And we should be calling it out as a Republican pandemic. And the Democrats should as well.
1: I agree. You know, they, they, the De- they re- referred to the Great Depression right up until uh, after World War II, right until the end of World War II, they referred to it as the Republican Great Depression. And then when Eisenhower became elected, it kind of fell out of favor. Um, but we should start calling it the Republican Great Pandemic. There is a new study that was just published in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition It's titled The Carbohydrate Insulin Model, A Physiological Perspective on the Obesity Pandemic. Conventional wisdom and the theory behind most dieting is that if we eat fewer calories than we burn every day, we lose weight. And if we eat more calories than we burn every day, we gain weight. It just makes sense. It's very mechanistic, but it just makes sense. It's very mechanical. But it kind of treats our body like a machine, and our body isn't actually a machine. It's a very complex uh, organic system, living system, with all kinds of interrelated parts that interact with each other. And what, what they found, uh, you know, they point out, obesity affects more than 40% of American adults, placing them at higher risk for heart disease, stroke, type 2 diabetes, and certain types of cancer. And the conventional wisdom is, you know, that people are are overweight because they eat too much, and eating too much is what causes them to be overweight, and to stop being overweight, what they need to do is stop eating so much. Well, what these folks are saying, what these researchers are saying, based on their on their research, is that there's a fundamental flaw in that model. That model actually doesn't work with our bodies. That actually what has happened is that when we... Back in the '80s and '90s, we, we went on this low-fat binge, because we thought fat was causing heart disease. Turns out it wasn't fat, it was a particular type of fat, um, which is, you know trans fats, which have been largely removed from our diet. We went on these uh, zero-fat or low-fat foods, and what they did is they replaced sugar with the, you know they replaced the fat with sugar, or with highly refined carbohydrates. And what those do is when you consume a lot of these high glycemic foods, these processed, rapidly digestible carbohydrates, they quote, cause hormonal changes, the responses that fundamentally change our metabolism, driving fat storage, weight gain, and obesity. So again, reading from the, the summary of this report, when we eat highly processed carbohydrates, the body increases insulin secretion and suppresses glucagon secretion this in turn signals fat cells to store more calories leaving fewer calories available to fuel muscles and other metabolically active tissues including your brain the brain perceives that the body isn't getting enough energy which in turn leads to feelings of hunger in other words eating highly refined foods and and uh, lots of sugar and carbohydrates basically white stuff eating that causes our body to start storing those calories as fat and that triggers our body to say more and more, I need more and more, this isn't enough because it's all getting redirected into fat rather than being available to the brains and the muscles, into the brain and the muscles. So it's not that overweight people are overweight because they're eating too much. They're eating foods that are causing them to store fat and causing them to crave more of those kinds of foods the solution they say is very simple uh, adoption of this model has radical implications for weight management and obesity treating rather than urging people to eat less which usually doesn't work we should focus more on what we eat reducing according to one of the physicians who wrote the thing reducing consumption of rapidly digestible carbohydrates that flood the food supply during the flood of the food supply during the low-fat diet era lessens the underlying drive to store body fat as a result people will lose weight with less hunger and less struggle eat your veggies right <laughs> and you know you're everything else that's not highly refined sugars and and and, and flours amazing That's netsuite.com slash Hartman.
0: Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit SleepingDogsMovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's SleepingDogsMovie.com slash Wondery.
1: This week, there was an interesting piece in the New York Times yesterday about how uh, a couple of uh, people within the Biden administration are, have joined this kind of international call for America not to do booster shots, And the reason that they're citing, in fact, two of them are talking about resigning their jobs in protest. Um, The reason that they're citing is that there's not enough vaccines in the world for everybody, so Americans shouldn't get booster shots. We should instead be giving those booster shots to other countries. And I I read the entire article kind of with my my jaw hanging loose. I mean, because it made no mention of a kind of plan B, an alternative, where everybody in the world could get vaccines. And Americans could still get boosters. I mean, they they they, they were not arguing that uh, that that protection doesn't decline with time. They were simply arguing kind of the moral position of how dare we, you know, overconsume vaccines when other people other people can't get any. Um, but there is another way around this. And Lori Wallach, our old buddy with the uh, who is the executive director of Glo- of uh, Public Citizens Global Trade Watch, TradeWatch.org is the website um is back with us uh lori welcome back to the program what is the first of all for people who haven't heard this conversation before because people tune in and tune out all, all the time on radio programs and tv programs um uh, just recap for us real quickly what a uh, trip's waiver is and what the situation is
0: so the basic situation is that the world health organization says we need someplace between 14 and 15 billion more doses of vaccine to be able to vaccinate the world, which is the only way to end the pandemic. Right now, vaccination rates in poor and middle income countries are about 2.5%. So we get outcomes like the Delta variant, which came from India, where there's no vaccination to speak of, and the, the COVID's raging any place. The virus is raging. We could get new, more dangerous, horrible. Variants that basically keep us in an endless pandemic. So this is not something that is a technological problem or even a financial problem. We know how to do it, and the money's there. Right now, there are intellectual property barriers, including those enforced by the World Trade Organization. So those are monopolies The big pharmaceutical companies control if, when, how much vaccine is made. And a year ago, October 2nd, 2020, South Africa and India proposed to waive temporarily those monopolies so that we could have vaccines being made by qualified companies that exist all around the world, so we could actually get enough vaccines made.
1: Third so world countries, in other words, here. do have the ability to make vaccines. They make their own measles vaccines. They make their own polio vaccines. I mean, it's, it, this is not a capability that they lack. It's not like we need to, to send boatloads of vaccine manufactured in the United States to these countries. They can make them themselves. What's blocking them is basically that these big companies have patented these vaccines and are saying, you can't have it. Is that right? Exactly. Okay.
0: Exactly. So what you call the TRIPS waiver, that's that's shorthand for the the WTO's agreement on trade-related intellectual property, TRIPS, is waiving those rules that right now make every country in the world give these monopoly control rights to those handful of companies that are being greedy and won't basically even allow other companies to pay them to make more doses. So... um, Right now, you've got, we're just coming up on the United Nations Global Assembly, the summit of all the world's leaders. It's a year after that idea got hatched, and there's no progress. A handful of countries are blocking it. The Biden administration did the right thing in May. They reversed the Trump administration's opposition to letting more vaccines be made. But since then, the Biden administration really hasn't stepped up to make it happen. And Germany and just literally one or two other countries are blocking 150 countries that want this waiver. Plus, the Biden administration has not used the authority it has. It has statutory authority to like make Moderna, share those recipes, because the US government paid for the research. We're one of the holders of some of that patent. And then the third thing is they haven't really stepped up and put up the money to do what you just said, which is to have global production. You know, We're not gonna fix this by sharing the existing slices of pie. We need to build more pie factories. (laughs) And we have the capacity to do it. We're just not there. And so this big U.N. meeting with all the world leaders, this is the moment where President Biden just has to deliver. This
1: is next week, right?
0: The summit is next week. Not only will Germany, the blocker, be there, but also all the world's leaders will be there. And President Biden has called for a special COVID summit. But, Tom yesterday the list of things they're trying to achieve at that global summit started to circulate around washington and it's really embarrassing it's just like a conference to talk about donating existing doses okay. it's like hello we know that's not going to work we've seen for a year that is not working two percent of population in africa in asia and latin america have these vaccines we need to make more it is a damn crisis and it's in our interest directly it's not just the ethically, morally right thing to do It is in our interest. And yet this very modest, tweaky proposal seems to be what the Biden administration has in mind, which is to say we all need to raise the heat, raise the pressure to get Joe Biden to follow through what he said. He said the right thing. Tommy did the right thing. And he was totally brave. Yeah. He said in the face of pharma hysteria, we're putting saving lives first. And now we have to help them deliver
1: yeah and and so uh how do we do that Lori?
0: so i would love everyone to join in on a petition that's going to the white house that is at tradewatch.org that's www.tradewatch.org when you land on that website up in the left-hand corner it basically has get involved in global vaccinations Mm -hmm. click on that you go right to where there are actions it's very easy to do and you can pass it on to friends that's number one Number two, a lot of members of Congress are very exercised about the fact that the administration has not made a global COVID plan. So if you have any kind of relationship with your House member or your senator, please weigh in with them. The White House really cares what these members of Congress think, and as they're starting to pile on the White House saying, hey, where's the plan? That will help. Your petition and your members of Congress, it can make a real difference. That's at TradeWatch.org. Right.
1: So, Laurie, you, we've talked to before, you and I, about how uh, Angela Merkel has been the kind of the roadblock here, at least the largest roadblock, um, to, to this. And, and let's be clear, these trips waivers would not reduce would not eliminate or even reduce the prob- profitability of the companies that are currently making these vaccines. The third world countries that, you know, they would continue essentially to license the vaccine technology from them. They just wouldn't pay them the high prices, that, but they would pay them a much lower price. So it would expand the profitability of these companies. They would be getting money for doing absolutely nothing. Um, uh, so it's not like, you know, we're, we're trying to play, uh, you know, Bolshevik revolution here. Um, You know, just to be clear, do I have that right, first of all, before I go on to my question? You have it spot on. Okay. So, the question. I've been reading, particularly in the Financial Times, they're following the German elections very carefully, very closely, because Angela Merkel is on her way out. And her chosen guy to be the Christian Democrats, the biggest party, you know, the party that she represents and that has won four out of the last five elections, uh, is kind of faltering. Um, how, How does German domestic politics play into this, or do they not?
0: Well, you're, you're right on with that question, because this is the moment. This is why President Biden stepping up now at this U.N. global summit when all the other heads of state will be there is so important, because with Angela Merkel leaving, and she's been a passionate opponent of this waiver, is an opportunity. Nobody knows who the next head of Germany is going to be and what political party. The Greens, who are doing quite well, support the waiver at the WTO, support technology transfer, See the situation for what it is, which is a global crisis of humanity that we have to unite together to conquer. The socialists, who are also doing pretty well, the democratic socialists, those guys are a little split. Some of the party thinks there should be a waiver. Some of them are not for the waiver, but there's an opening there. And then as you said, Angela Merkel's party, the Christian Democrats, they're all about big pharma and keeping the monopolies. So if the German election results as people expect, as you just said, in Merkel's party not running the show anymore. That's an enormous opening. But in order to translate that into shots and in arms, we need President Biden right now, next week, when he's with all of his other heads of state buddies, to basically lay down the law, which is to say just to be brave. It's not that he has to persuade them. They all agree. Hell, even the president of France, as far as Europe's position, is on the right side of this. It. It's just a question of being the brave moral leader, of getting up ahead of steam, cutting the wake so everyone else can follow and basically getting this done right now because tom the alternative it's too horrific to, sit,
1: to even contemplate right. it's more
0: cycle of new variants
1: yeah it's more more mutations more variants more death more disease all around the world Lori wallach tradewatch.org get over there check it out upper left hand corner click the activism button is that it get an involved button you've been listening to tom hartman